Hi, I'm Jules van Binsberg and a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Jonathan Burke, a finance professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about something that has intrigued Jules and I for the last few weeks, which is nonprofits and what motivates nonprofits and what are the incentives of people who run nonprofits. So let's just first create a contrast with for-profit organizations. So in for-profit organizations, the way that they're organized, there is what we call a residual claimant, which is a way of saying equity holders that get the final cash flows that a particular enterprise produces. And so because they're entitled to those residual claims, it's clear that the organization has a fiduciary duty and the management has a fiduciary duty to act in their best interest. So the purpose of a for-profit organization is to generate profits for the shareholders, for the residual claimants. But in a nonprofit, we do not have such a party. Jules, I would actually say a little bit stronger because you could imagine having non-voting equity. But the fact is, the way corporations are organized is equity is voting. And what that means is they ultimately decide who controls the organization, right? If you want to change the way the organizations run, you can buy the equity, vote out the current management, and put new managers in. So ultimately, there is a set of individuals who control the organization, and that set of individuals is determined by the capital markets. What's odd about nonprofits is there doesn't appear to be any kind of discipline. The person running the organization, there's no legal means to change the people running the organization. And you would imagine that that structure would lead to a lot of abuse. Yeah, it does sound like if there's not a clearly defined party and in whose interest the organization is being run, then we get in, into a much more difficult situation. We had a whole episode in which we discussed the shareholder model versus the stakeholder model. And when we discussed the stakeholders, we immediately came to the conclusion that you, if you have seven, eight, nine, ten different groups of stakeholders, in whose interest are you running the organization and how do you trade off the different interests of these particular groups? And so let's take a university as an example. The university, most universities, are being run as nonprofits. There are very few that are run as for-profits, but I think that we can conclude that the most famous ones and the successful ones are essentially all organized around either publicly financed institutions or in the case of private universities as nonprofit institutions. Yeah, I think, you know, based on what we see, it seems like the nonprofit model is a better model for universities, which grows counter to what my intuition would have been, which is the model, because there's no ultimate ability to hold people's feet to the fire, would fail. And it clearly isn't the case in universities. It seems like the model has succeeded spectacularly. So the question is, why? Yeah. So let's first think about all of the different stakeholders that a university has. So first, there is the current students, the people that are currently enrolled in the programs. Secondly, there is all the faculty members and there are tenured faculty members that have a job for life and there are temporary employees that do not have a contract for life. Then we have a large group of administrators that work for the university and that run the university. 
And then we have, and I think this is a very important group to think about, the former students or the alums. And so the alums are people that attended the university in the past. And I think that what we should not underestimate, Jonathan, is uh, what we observe is the enormously strong connection that these alums seem to have with the institution. They seem to have a lot of heart for the institution and they're willing to actually spend a lot of time and effort on the institution, despite the fact that the institution isn't paying them. Yeah, so I think that's one of the most important insights to explain why the nonprofit system works as well as the universities. And it ties it back to our last episode about non-pecuniary benefits. You know, when you go to university, it's a very formative time in your life. It's often, certainly for me, it was one of the most enjoyable parts of my life. And you think back on that. And that non-pecuniary link connects alumni to university in a way that they are willing, not only to donate their money, but more importantly, for these very high-profile alumni to devote their time and effort into running, into overseeing the university. And it's not clear to me that if they were equity holders, they would put in that time and effort. I think part of the reason they're putting in the time and effort is because it's a nonprofit and because they see it as a greater good activity. Yeah, because it is true that universities, through the activities that they do, they do generate a lot of value also outside of the direct measurable benefits to the institution itself. The whole point of having universities is that it creates a greater good for the rest of society. And it does indeed seem that these alums are spending the time and effort on this for that greater good. And so, Jonathan, maybe it is the case that because the university gets this buy-in from alums and these donations from alums, that that actually has quite a disciplining effect on how the organization is run. Because I think that the reputation of university is very important for keeping on generating those donations and that involvement. And that means that the way that universities run today should be very wary of damaging that reputation. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a very important insight. Look, you could think of, in a regular corporation, the equity holders could vote with their feet. They get set up, they sell their stock, and that lowers the price and makes it difficult for the firm to raise capital. In the nonprofit world, and particularly in the university world, the way the people who are ultimately the people in control, the way they vote is they don't longer give more donations. So the university administration are sensitive to the fact that if they damage the reputation or they do things that they, you know, the big worry is they do things that benefit themselves at the cost of the university's reputation. And that that behavior could be very costly because if the alumni stop donating money, the business model is broken. So this idea of constant donations, I think is the crucial element that makes this model work. Yeah, although one important difference though, Jonathan, and and I do think that that may be a benefit of a publicly traded corporation, is that a publicly traded corporation has a market price that can instantaneously adjust and it's visible to everybody immediately that the stock price drops if something bad happens to the company. Whereas I think that the reputation of a university is a more persistent thing that responds slowly. But I think your mechanism that you described is exactly right. That's still in play. It just responds more slowly. Yeah, so I guess the puzzle is it's surprising it works as well as it does. Because you're right. Reputations revolve so slowly that I'm not going to say right now, but I have two universities in mind 
that are on a steady, long decline. And how long is it going to take for those universities to realize that they're on this long decline? I don't know. But it is it's surprising that it works as well as it does. Okay, well, with that in mind, why don't we introduce our guest? Our guest today is Daniel Diermeyer, who is a political scientist who currently serves as the ninth chancellor of Vanderbilt University. Previously, he was the David Lee Schilling Law Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago, where he was also the provost. So, Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a great honor to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I love the podcast. I listen to it regularly, so it's wonderful to be part of it. Thank you. So the first question that we would like to dive into is that when we look at for-profit organizations, I think there is a sense of what the objective of such an organization is. So there are equity holders and people act in the best interest of those equity holders. When we talk about a nonprofit organization like Vanderbilt, what would you say is the objective of such an organization? Yeah, I think that obviously it varies tremendously from one organization to the other. In the case of a research university, it's always the same. It's like to produce path-breaking research and transformative education. So being clear about what that mission is, is of course essential. And then you have to organize around that. So that statement you just made does have a temporal component to it, right? So meaning you can do education now, you can do education in the future, you can do research now, you can do research in the future. What are you trying to achieve over what horizon? Well, as you know, universities are some of the oldest institutions that we know, right? I mean, the University of Bologna, I think, started in 1088, Oxford, Cambridge, University of Paris. So they are built for the long haul. And I think their structures and the way they're financed really speak to that. My sense is that the success you're going to have in the long run is driven by the quality of work and the reputation that comes with that right now. So you're not going to be successful as a university by storing away resources that then can be used 50 years from now. What you're doing right now is you're trying to do the very best work that you can on the research and educational side, and that generates the type of resources that you need. And by resources, I don't just mean financial resources, but if you are viewed as a great university, your destination for talent, people want to support you, and that creates the momentum then to build a great future. So how actually do you make that decision? I mean, as a faculty member, I've often wondered about this because let's say I could choose to spend more money today and look at that and say, well, that means I have less money to spend in the future. Or you could say, no, 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 by choosing to spend more money today, the future will be different. And in fact, we'll have more money in the future because either the research will produce tremendous benefits or the students we educate will go on to be very successful. They donate more money. So how do you make that investment? And does anybody think about this in a rigorous way? Not in a rigorous way, I don't think. But the way you describe it, I think these two pathways, I think, are right. There is some debate on that, on kind of intergenerational equity particularly when you think about endowments and so forth. But my sense is that the most successful universities very much think about this in the second path. Is that what you want to do is the future is different. You know, tomorrow goes to today. And what we're doing today, if we're successful there, it creates this feedback loop that then hopefully will generate a successful future as well. So just to give you one example, right? When you look at fundraising, most fundraising for most places is focused on alumni. So people support the university because, if you will, the degree that they have goes up in value if the university does well and they have an emotional connection. 
with universities. So that's what they do it. But there are a few universities, very few, a handful, that are able to secure philanthropic resources because they're the very best place in the world where that particular type of work can happen. And once you are at that level, of course, your access to philanthropic support is much larger. And the same is true, I would say, I would argue with respect to professors, with respect to talent, with respect to students and so forth. So that's why the excellence that you create today, and then very importantly, the reputation that comes with that is becomes a magnet for talent and resources. And that's the path to success. What I find very interesting indeed about what you said is really that the university's biggest asset that has the largest value is in fact not the downwind itself. It's the reputation that it has and the brand name that it has that will generate further talent attraction, patents, and also alumni donations in the future. 100% true. I mean, my sense is the business model of a, again, these are for a particular segment of universities, is exactly that. You know, you do great things that increase your reputation, that allows you to attract resources and talent, that allows you to do great things, and that's the way it goes. So Daniel, what you're saying is right. The reputation of the university is, of course, the greatest asset in the university. The question, of course, then is, how do you protect that re reputation? I mean, there are a lot of people that would like to benefit off that reputation, but in benefiting, hurt the reputation. How do you deal with that? This is hugely important and very challenging. And I think the first most important thing when you think about defending or protecting reputation is to be super clear who you are and what your values are and what the principles are that are really constitutive for the greatness of this particular place and the eminence of this particular place. So that's the first thing. And then when you're thinking about threats to the reputation or crisis that you may have, maybe because somebody's acting in a particular way that's inappropriate, then the way you have to communicate that has to be in line with these values, and it has to be sophisticated enough to understand that the reputation that you're dealing with is often not just one group of people, but multiple people. It's your internal stakeholders, it's your internal students, faculty, board, alums, but it also is, of course, pr prospective students, it's other faculty, it's graduate students. So reputation is not just one thing, but reputation needs to be guarded and protected with respect to multiple segments with multiple audiences, and they have different concerns, including now, of course, public opinion in general, the political environment, and so forth. And that's the challenge and a big difficulty with respect to the general public and also like, you know, regulatory, if you think about Department of Education or legislators, is that the work of the university is complex. It's not obvious. It's not intuitive. It's challenging. But you have to be able to communicate this in a way that the value of the university is understood by people, even if they don't appreciate all the intricacies of academic life. Yeah. So what you just mentioned is very interesting because we had a previous episode where we talked about stakeholder versus shareholder types of models. And we actually came to the conclusion shareholder models are really easy compared to stakeholder models because there's one group. It's a perfectly defined group with a perfectly defined objective. So what you just indicated was that as a university, you're automatically involved in a stakeholder model because there are multiple different groups that have different interests. And so when it comes to trading off the different interests of these groups, do you have explicit discussions about this, how you do that? For example, I know that there are people that feel that certain degrees, if we grant too many of them, that will erode the value of the degree. And so who decides, who makes those investment decisions, if you will? 
Yeah, this is, this is, of course, the hardest job when you're president or you're provost is you have multiple different areas that all are great and that deserve investment. How do you do that? So I'm a little tongue-in-cheek. My view when I was provost was always to say the provost has many children. He loves them all. But this one needs a little bit more support right now. Okay? So I think that there are certain... You have to be able to make the allocation of resources and of capital and investment is absolutely essential. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's challenging. So an obvious example is right now is that with the advances that we're seeing in computer science, AI, and so forth, you got to have to make investments there to be a great university because that's part of what it means now for students to be well-educated. But then there are other areas where you have to ask yourself, do I have a right to win? I mean, is that an area where we can really be eminent, where we can create some research strengths? How do we do that? And that may very well mean that temporarily for a while, you enter investing in one area and then another one right now is put on hold. Those are hard decisions. There's no algorithm or like a simple way to do that, but that's what you'd be able to have to do as an academic leader. So Daniel, you know, in thinking about the organization of a nonprofit, there isn't a residual payment. There isn't a set of people with the eye on the ball looking at what's going on. Now, I admit not every for-profit organization has that effect of people, but ultimately every for-profit organization does have, in the end, somebody whose pocket is going to be reached into or whose pocket might not get a dividend. How, in a nonprofit where that doesn't occur, how do you keep your eye on the ball? Yeah, so I think, well, this this is a deep question. There's lots of layers to it. Here's the way I would think about this. The way I would think about this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it around a little bit. So my sense is, okay, so we start with a mission. Let's say your mission is you want to build a great research university, okay? You can, in principle, be for-profit, you could be non-for-profit, and then you have to make some investments, and you ask yourself, what are the sources of capital to make that type of an investment, right? Well, what are the sources of capital that are available to us? Well, you know, we can save our cash, we can go into debt. In a for-profit case, you know, we can issue equity, or in a nonprofit case now, you have available two sources of capital, which you don't have in the for-profit, which is philanthropy and federal research support. So you make a decision in some sense, okay, I'm not doing this, I'm going that. And so now the question is, what are the governance structures, right, that allow you to make sure that you're on track on these things that are not the capital markets? Because other than debt holders, you're not in it, Right. And the debt, universities typically are very conservative debt structure, so that's not really a constraint in any meaningful way. So the challenge there is that, of course, the governance structure comes down to the board, and the board is their variety in how they're organized. They have fundamentally, that's their job to do that, but it's not their money, right? But it is their reputation, because many of the board members are alums now, so they have a very strong stake in the university, and so they really want to make sure that the place that they love is run well. So it's not through, I don't think it's through directly through a financial interest or fiduciary. It's deeper than that. It is for people, it's a thing that they care about deeply. And remember, the bond that alums have with the university is really deep and unique. I mean, when people in a conversation, one of the first things they say is like, well, I graduated from this and that university. When they go to the gym, they wear a t-shirt with the university on it. Right? I mean, that's a deep relationship. And then to go all the way to the next level where you're active 
in alumni boards or then even of the board of trustees, they care. So I think that the governance structure, the oversight just has a different motivation that comes from having a very high stake in this and passion for this particular university in this case, or in some other cases, the nonprofit is because people care about what the nonprofit does deeply. That's where this comes from. I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, I often tell my the students also when they're about to graduate, I often say to them, listen, in the end, faculty and administrators have a job at the university. And so when they switch jobs, it will be their next job. And then they will be employed by that next university that they're working at. Whereas as an alum, you are permanently linked to that university in your DNA. Now it will never go away. It will be, it's part of your identity. And I think that deep connection, I think is one that's very important to keep in mind. So comparing private universities to public universities, I mean, I agree with you. I think the reason why the private universities have done as well as they have is precisely because of very committed alums who are driven by non-monetary incentives, as we spoke about in the last podcast. But the question is, the extent to which it's government-funded puts a wedge between the alums who care about the institution and a bunch of politicians who are just elected for whatever it is, four years. So do you think that the system where of government funding of education is not as good as the private model? Well, I think the great private universities in the United States are enormous treasures, and they're a miraculous thing. And if you think about it, right, just exactly as you say, if everything was publicly funded, 100%, is it would be the case for, I mean, I, I'm German originally, I think we all are immigrants around this call, you right? So you look back at like the university systems that you're familiar with, every time it's subject to whatever the political priorities are, and then a pluralistic democracy that changes. And you have to work for that, and you have to make sure you get the allocations and the funding. And if you need any convincing of that, I think you need to look what's happening in British universities right now where there's a real funding crisis right now, post-Brexit, that very, very, very well may threaten the status of British universities. So then you're basically in a pluralistic democracy with all the challenges that come with that. But there's this other model. And the other model is that you have people that are deeply committed to the mission of this university, of these universities, that are voluntarily funding that through their donation you create an endowment, and that endowment now, or funds that can be used right now, allows you now to pursue your mission without being so dependent on what's happening in the public side. I mean, if you think about it, it's a phenomenal deal for the country because people voluntarily supporting something that in other countries has to be funded by the taxpayer. So I always hear these kind of attacks on endowments and, you know, they're so rich. It, well, it's a wonderful thing because... Again, for great universities, 25% on average, 30% of the overall operating costs comes from people that give their money, that support them voluntarily because they believe in it. And these 30% don't have to be carried by the taxpayer. What a great thing, right? And so if you go back to the original great model when the modern research university was invented by Humboldt, you know, in the early 19th century, he talks about this already. He talks about how critical it is that research universities, to be able to pursue their mission freely, as much independent as they can from the vagaries of public policy and the political debates of the day, should have an endowment, and that should fund at least a large part of the operations. So this is a phenomenal thing, and it's no accident that they're the envy of the world. So then 
we talked about the private versus public, but let's go to the other side. One thing that is also interesting, I think, is that essentially none of the top universities in the United States or maybe even in the world are organized as for-profit organizations. Right? And so clearly there's something about that model of the nonprofit that seems to work for this particular sector. So there's something that the nonprofit can achieve that the for-profit market-based model wouldn't be able to achieve. So is that just that loyalty that you talked about earlier for people being in it for the right reasons, or is there something else as well? So that's one piece, of course. But the other piece I think crucially important is really how research is financed. And the problem is that the research, the basic research, that great universities are engaged in generates a tremendous amount of social benefit. So there's great work now by Ben Jones and Northwestern and co-authors that basically say for every dollar the government puts in to research support, we get $5 back at least. It's an an enormous return. But the problem, of course, is that that return, given the the way universities are structured, is not captured by the university. It's picked up by all sorts of things, sometimes companies, sometimes other researchers, So the model where we're freely sharing ideas and where we're having publications generates an enormous value, but it's very difficult to capture that inside one organization. And of course, much of the research is very basic. It's very long-term. It doesn't have a direct context. It doesn't have a direct application. So very, very difficult to imagine how this would work at a for-profit university. I'm going to say something provocative now. I think actually that universities have a huge advantage over research R&D shops and for-profit companies. And in part, the reason is that, first of all, there's funding that comes from the government. But setting that aside, the investment in research infrastructure, right, because we also teach and we use this for education of graduates to undergraduates, so it's kind of a multi-purpose use of the same thing with defrays the cost, of course. So I think we are like, we're not really fully appreciating the enormous innovation machines that research universities are. And with their specific design, they have huge advantages, both over for-profit entities, universities, or for-profit universities, or even R&D that's happening in companies, and also research that's entirely publicly funded. Yeah, I mean, just listening to you, it just is hard not to see that the for-profit companies will look at the externality and say, well, it's benefiting other people, not us, and not make the investment. And the whole point about a university is they don't care about that. Exactly. Because it's a philanthropic organization. That's exactly right. And if you have, if you think about it, you're on a lab and you're like, you're trying to develop a particular technology and it's just not coming to fruition. Okay. You have still written a bunch of papers. That's useful because we now know what not to do. And you educated a new generation of graduate students. And whether it becomes something that's commercially viable, well, that's extra. And that's just not the core component, but it is a very useful thing and when we think about it in terms of like their, their, the social impact. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting podcast. I mean, I've learned a lot on this podcast. Well, very good. Very good. This was fun. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great, Daniel. Thank you. You know, Jules, the insight, and I guess it sounds obvious when you hear it, but I, it wasn't obvious to me, but the insight that a for-profit organization won't invest because it can't capture the positive externalities, whereas a non-for-profit organization doesn't care about not capturing the positive externalities, thereby giving universities a competitive advantage. I think that's a pretty important point that I really hadn't appreciated. No, and it also shows you that when we were having these discussions about big problems that need to be solved in society, that maybe 
indeed, the nonprofit structure is the right way to go after those problems, rather than taking the for-profit organizations and trying to discipline with all kinds of different mechanisms, trying to make them go for the positive externalities. I mean, we have a model for these sorts of questions, and we discussed it today. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.